0: Welcome to Podcast Episode Thirty Seven. As the Grateful Dead once put it, "What a long, strange trip it's been." I'm glad you're here with us. Thanks for listening. So, I want to begin by talking about Kendrick Brothers movies. I want to talk about Kendrick Brothers movies, and I have to I have to make some qualifications at the outset, and I hope you'll bear with me. Um, uh, my wife and I are not big movie people we are we watch the occasional movie but we're not big movie people and we're not up to speed on um, many different aspects of, of movies and we don't have the wisdom and expertise uh, that comes with being big movie people but I also think that we don't have the um, blind spots that big movie people sometimes have where they they're so immersed in the um, they're, they're so immersed in it that they don't see what's going on anymore. So, um, but that, basically, what you see is what you get. We're not, we're not big movie people. Uh, but for whatever reason, I, I watched uh, the, the Kendrick Brothers movies are, are movies like uh, Fireproof and then uh, uh, Courageous came out a few um, uh, years ago and then uh, The War Room. Uh, more recently, and and facing the giants, years ago I saw Fireproof, and then also years ago I saw Courageous. These are all um, Christian movies, evangelical Christian movies, and they and and they they um, they have varying degrees of production quality. So, um, Kurt Cameron was in Fireproof, and. Uh, and the others have been—the actors have not been um, uh, household name actors. Uh, and the production quality seems to be sort of like decent made-for-TV um, movies, uh, you know, Hallmark Channel kind of uh, things. And, and then the, the plot line would be uh, a predictable— evangelical arc, either a conversion arc or a rededication arc, uh, and then resolution accordingly. So, um, and i found myself watching, watching these movies. I, I, I recognize that, um, that if you've got a, uh, relatively speaking a low budget, you know, you, you, you don't have the millions that many Hollywood, Hollywood, um, uh, movies have, and you have an evangelical story arc, then it's going to be very easy to sniff at it or to dismiss it. Um, So um, for whatever reason, uh, just recently my wife and I watched, uh, we watched Facing the Giants, which I had not seen, and we watched The War Room. And then a few years ago, I'd seen Fireproof and Courageous. So I'm putting these movies all uh, together in one basket and dealing with them together. And uh, first, the first thing I'd want to mention is that um, with every one of them, all, with all four of them, as a pastor, I found myself really wishing that people that I knew that I was counseling or that I was trying to help or the people whose um, marriages I was trying to help them with uh, would be able to see and be affected by the principles that were being set out in the movie. Now, a critic might say, "Yeah, well, uh, but it's still cheesy, or it's still cliched, or it's still um, it's still hackneyed." Well, I I think that people are are misreading a number of um, misreading a number of things. If um, when when people look at a a Christian movie, an evangelical movie, with lower production values, which is usually a, f- a function of not as much money, and th- there's a vicious cycle there. If they, if they look at that and they say, see, low production values, not great art, um, this is not a story for the ages, um, that is the, the uh, fault is assigned to the evangelicalism of the movie makers. Well, this is a problem because that's evangelicals just can't tell stories. Well, I'm pr- I'm pretty sure, as one of my family members once put it, as we were discussing this, I'm pretty sure that it wasn't evangelicals who made Hot Tub Time Machine, uh, or all the other dumb and stupid movies that are are churned out by Hollywood all the time. No one says, oh, that that was. Uh, Done so poorly because of the secularism, or that was done so poorly because the directors an atheist, or that was done so poorly because um, the the cast were all uh, hedonists no they they would say it's basically the bell curve follows us wherever we go, and out of all the movies made, some of them are going to be at least half of them are going to be below average movies and the below average movies are the ones that are going to have people with less talent trying to get in, less money trying to get into the program, etc. Now, uh, when when I see Christians making movies that have a true story arc um, and they're doing a decent job, I simply want to say any any Christian who's making a movie and successfully pulls it off, I want to Simply praise him and say, uh, "Let let experience come with time. Let uh, increased proficiency come with time. But but well done. Don't and don't let anybody tell you that. Uh, well, I'm going to appear to change the subject for here here for a minute. But I'm not really I'm not really changing the subject. Uh, peop, we have gotten the idea from somewhere that in order to be a realistic movie. In order to be a movie that's true to life, there's got to be grit and grime in it. There's got to be tawdry sin in it. And you've got to show the, the you know, the mud and the blood and the spit. Well, and this is, this is the case in all the arts, whether it's uh, uh, painting or, you know, photography or drama, uh, stage productions or writing. Uh, poetry, um, novels. If I were if I were doing a uh, if someone flew me in somewhere and I was doing a writers workshop workshop for aspiring Christian writers, the chances are pretty good that a number of those writers would be aspiring to break into the big time. They would they would want to um, get published by a big New York house, etc. cetera. And the, the chances are also pretty good that they would say, uh, "I." We, we need to be realistic. I've got all these F-bombs all through my, my manuscript because that's the way the world is, baby. And I've got this, um, you know, this heroin addict. Uh, this, the, my protagonist is a heroin addict who's teaching Sunday school because that's the way the world is and, you know, all of this. And, and they say, so teach us um, in this writer's workshop. I would I would say, okay, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to write me a sketch for tomorrow morning of a um, of a father, a um, a dutiful father reading a bedtime story to his adorably cute four-year-old daughter, who is clutching a big stuffed floppy-eared bunny, and I want him to read the story. I want her to tell him that she loves him very much, and I want him to say, I love you too, and I want him to tuck her in, kiss her on the forehead goodnight, and then come out. That's your sketch. I want you to write me a sketch uh, of that, that kind of scenario, and I don't want any irony in it. I don't want any, um, uh, you know, I just want you to do it straight. I want you to describe that for me. Now there'll probably be howls of protest because they would say we want to write about reality. We want to write about the mud and the blood and the grit and the grime. We we want to grapple. We want to wrestle with real issues. Uh, we want realistic fiction. Now I would my reply to that is: Are there no fathers who adore their four-year-old daughters who are adorably cute? Are there no adorable daughters who have stuffed bunnies? And are there no are there no people in the world? Uh, reading bedtime stories. Of course, that's that's what on earth makes us think that heroin addiction is more real than reading a bedtime story to a cute little girl. They're both, I mean, they they both oc- occupy space. They both are happening in the real world. Why is one realistic and the other uh, dismissed as not realistic? Uh, or, um, or and then the day two in the reading workshop, I I assign everybody the task of. Uh, describing someone getting saved at a Billy Graham crusade. Um, well, I want to write about reality. Well, yeah, okay. So like that never happens, All right. <laughs> of course it happens. Um, that's just as realistic. That's if if you're defining reality without the grimy spin. Okay. So back to the back to the Kendrick Brothers. I believe that the whatever criticisms you might level at those movies, it does not have to do with the story arc. It does not have to do with the story arc, because that uh, that story arc can... Uh, uh, th- that's the same story arc that you can find in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. It's the, it's the same thing. Um, there's nothing wrong with a, a, a con- conversion story arc. There's nothing wrong with... Um, Having people be overtly, explicitly religious in your movie because that's realistic. That's the way that's the way a bunch of the world uh, is. Um, and it, it seems to me that there is if if someone said, well, okay, you're defending the Kendrick brothers, and yes, I am, um, and you're applauding them. Uh, you know, two cheers for the Kendrick brothers. Yes, that's that's fair. Uh, if someone were to ask me what what sorts of things would you want them to do? I would say, well, probably the best the 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 thing I would say can be could be addressed with money, and I would say it has to do with their sets, and their and the acting ability of the people. A lot of the people are uh, a little stiff because they're not trained actors. They're not uh, uh, and they're not naturals. They do they do a decent job for not being actors, but i think it it shows it's noticeable that it's not there and the and the there's something um indefinably when you when you go into a um a stage production you expect the state the the set to look like a, a painted set and there are times when you you have that same sensation looking at a uh, the, you know the neighborhood the suburban neighborhood is just the, is the wrong kind of neat and tidy. It's a little bit too neat and tidy to be an actual um, place. So I'd say pay attention to your sets and pay attention to your actors and keep doing what you're doing and you're going to get better and better and and have the turns the, the plot turns not quite as predictable, but it's good that they're predictable because God has written, a predictable, God has written us predictable storylines because we need the reminding. There's a lot more that can be said on this. I'll just leave it there for now. So my book review for podcast episode 37, that's where we are, right, is uh, Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. This is a book that, uh, it was the first book that I ever read by uh, someone who was identified with the Reconstructionist movement. I read it back sometime in the eighties, pretty sure it was in the eighties. Uh, and Ronald Sider, a um, um, a what do you call it? More on the collectivist end of things, had written a, a, a very popular book called *Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger*. *Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger*. And Chilton was responding to Sider uh, with this book, and I. Um, and it was my first introduction, not to free market economics because I've I've been um, familiar with that uh, for some years bef- before, but it was my first introduction to a robust biblical articulation of free market economics and the morality of markets, the morality of of um, not using not manipulating markets in order to get your desired. Outcomes. So um, uh, Chilton is a very talented writer. He's a very uh, insightful thinker. He um, he handles cider somewhat uh, roughly, um, but not uh, it's not scurrilous or vindictive. But he, I mean, it's a contact. The collision between these books is uh, full contact. Right? If this were a sport, it would be a padded. It would be a padded sport. You'd think of. Luther responding to Erasmus um, in *Bondage of the Will*. So, *Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators* is a is a great introduction to those people who want to think about everything, including economics, um, from within a biblical framework, which is the which is different than thinking about economics from within a cluster of biblical. Sentiments, uh, and by sentiments that, and that's what cider does. So wouldn't uh, cider is uh, dealing with um, certain sentimental notions, like wouldn't it be nice if everybody had enough to eat, and wouldn't it be nice if everybody um, had uh, a, a livable wage, and wouldn't it be nice if you know th- those sorts of things, and and aren't you the problem for having more than you need, and um, so just the title of Sider's book: "Rich Christians, Who Do You Think You Are in an Age of Hunger?" Look at, so the thing that that lies behind Sider's thinking is um, uh, zero sum thinking, where if if we're all sitting if if we're sitting in our global kitchen, all of us are sitting around the kitchen table, and there's a pie on the table, and we cut up the pie. If I get a big piece. That means, of necessity, my uh, third-world brother across the table from me gets a smaller piece. Not only does he get a smaller piece, but he gets a smaller piece because I got the bigger piece. So that's zero-sum thinking. Um, So the the only reason why he is starving, rich Christians in an age of hunger, the only reason he is starving is because I've got all this surplus. So... And that makes perfect sense. There are, you know, if you keep this your situation limited, but as Chilton shows, uh, in the world that God made, uh, the there's no there's no such thing as a fixed pie. In other words, the way we interrelate with one another, the way we understand markets, is going to be affected by. whether or not we understand that the pie grows. So I can get a if, if, suppose um, someone says, hey, are you going to, are you really honestly going to take a quarter of the pie? Um, And suppose I replied, yes, I'm taking a quarter of the pie, but I'm also, and uh, if they say, and are you taking a quarter of the pie because you're a greedy pig? I'd say, no, I'm taking a quarter of the pie because I know how to grow the pie. I know how to grow the pie so that when he gets 1 16th of the pie, when that guy across the way from me gets 1 16th of a pie that's twice as big, then I blessed him and I blessed myself. If I say, no, we're going to demand that the pie stays fixed and we're going to distribute it equitably, we're going to find ourselves tomorrow... Trying to trying to struggle with the reality of living in a world where nobody makes pies anymore. So uh, you have to deal with incentives, and you have to you have to deal with what is actually going to make the lot of the poor better. What's actually going to make it better for them? Think of it another way. I'll and I'll finish with this uh, thought: is if you had a button in front of you, um, and if you push that button, every poor person in the country would be um, two times better off than they are today in real purchasing power. Their house would be two times nicer, their car would be two times better, their income would be twice as much, and so on. Every poor person would be twice as, um, uh, would be two times better off. But the price of this would be every rich person would be ten times better off would you push the button? If you would, then you understand s- true spirituality. If you would not push the button, then you are consumed with envy and are part of the reason the poor are poor. So, Hamartiology, uh, podcast, episode 37. The New Testament rejects boasters. We see that in Romans one thirty, Second 2 Timothy 3.2. And so it's not surprising that it also condemns the sin of boasting. Uh, the, word, the, the word for boasting is aladzaneah, uh, and it's rendered as boasting once and as pride once. The man who thinks that he controls his own life and who's going to go here or there, do this or do that, and make money, and all without reference to God, is guilty of a great sin. That's um, laid out for us in James 4. 16. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. So you, you you say, I'm gonna go here, and I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna start that company, and I'm gonna do the other company, and I'm gonna do all these great and wonderful things. James says that it is evil. And John condemns this particular swelling as well, for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 1 John 2.16 This triad of sins matches the first temptation in the garden nicely. The forbidden fruit was good to eat, lust of the flesh, delightful to look upon, lust of the eyes, and able to make one wise, pride of life, or the boasting of life. There is also a strong connection to our triple enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit CanonPress.com.